Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming It's my great pleasure to introduce you to today's Spirit in Action guest, Scott Anderson. His home is the Blue Mounds Dharma Center of Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, and he's author of a brand new book, Alignment Yoga, An Intelligent Approach to Ancient Wisdom. Scott Anderson also originated something called Spectrum Yoga Therapy, an approach bringing yogic wisdom and healing to those on the autism spectrum. Scott was a high school and college athlete with physics and math as his academic path, moving into graduate work in biomechanics. And all of that doesn't begin to touch his deeply spiritual side in spite of the religious antipathy of his parents. And finally, he's brave enough to join me face-to-face in the Northern Spirit Radio studio here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in spite of my persistent cold. Before we talk to Scott Anderson, let's get into an India frame of mind with a little music from Deva Primal, Om Mani Padme Om.
Scott, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks for inviting me here. I've been looking forward to doing this interview for it's been a few months we've been talking about it, and I really appreciate the honor of being here with you. And in the interim, your new book has been able to come out. You've got it winging its ways to the various corners of the earth. I think you've been to India in the meantime, so there's a lot to catch up on. I want to start out right away by identifying what alignment yoga is. The title of the book is Alignment Yoga, an Intelligent Approach to Ancient Wisdom. And that was really the motivating force to write the book, is there's a lot of wisdom contained within yoga. What we see is that it assumes a number of things about our culture. Or more accurately, it assumes a lot of things about the Indian culture. And on a very physical level, what we find is that yoga comes out of a culture where very few people sat in chairs and very few people wore shoes. There's a whole series of techniques that have been created based on that postural reality. Well, that's just not the case here in the West. We've worn shoes most of our lives, we've sat in chairs, and our posture is very, very different as a result. So if we take a technique from India and we import it without questioning into a very different culture, we're bound to have some problems with it. On a very physical level, what we see is that most Westerners are deficient in some of their deepest core strength. There's the tacit assumption that if you simply do the yoga poses, the strength will take care of itself, and we don't often find that's the case. So alignment yoga, we've developed a number of strategies to help Westerners get the maximum benefit out of the techniques, and also to try and infuse some of the spiritual intents that were always part and parcel of yoga in India to bring those back to the fore in the Western interpretation. So our goal is really twofold. Can we import the essence of the practice in a way that more accurately suits the culture, the West? And just to be clear, this is spirit in action. And part of what we're trying to do is find things that will help the world be better. And I think your work with alignment yoga qualifies as that. But a lot of people may just think of yoga as the current fad. You actually help people with therapy, and I think even more significantly, you come from a place where you had been doing yoga in a different way, but it wasn't helping you, and you had to find something else. So give me a little bit of your history, how you got to this healing method, really, that is alignment yoga. I came to the practice for a number of different reasons. I became very interested in the practice and threw myself at it. I had a very fervent belief that through yoga I would be able to see sort of the ultimate reality of the universe. And my yoga practice really deepened when I was an undergrad in college. And I was studying physics largely because I wanted to understand how does this world work? In the macrocosm and the microcosm, how does this world work? I also had this very strong belief, which was not corroborated by my professors certainly or a lot of the people around me, that through yoga, I could understand how the world worked from the inside out. As I started to read about some of the ancient yogis, I started to really feel like, hey, you know, this might be the path. In some ways, this may be a more compelling path than the physics to show me how the world worked. So I became a very hungry student to try and learn more. And so I went to this yoga class and that yoga class, and people showed me things that were wondrously fascinating in terms of what the body could do, and how people could sort of develop a mastery over their body. And that was very seductive for a young person, and I became very interested in this sort of uh, perfection of the body, making sure everything's aligned this way and that way, and holding the poses for a very long time, and doing very, very long practices. I got a lot out of it. I became much stronger. I became much healthier. But at the end of the day, it was pretty clear I was not becoming healthier. In fact, the contrary seemed to be coming true. I got very injured in the process. I had a lower back injury from my yoga practice that was fairly debilitating. Couldn't sleep, 
couldn't ride my bike, couldn't do a lot of the things that as a young person I really cherished. So physically, my system crashed by following this very popular path of yoga. And along the way, I also noted myself becoming more neurotic. I had to control my world more and more just to sort of be at uh, baseline. You know, I became so hypersensitive to things that it was really hard to hold a job and it was very hard to, you know, figure out what to eat because everything became this big giant variable, this big giant deal. Thankfully, for whatever reason, I had a sort of the, the presence of mind to take a look at the whole situation and go, I'm not becoming a more capable person, I'm becoming a less capable person. If this is the trajectory, I should stop this immediately and find some other path. And for whatever reason, I had this, this, this dogged commitment that this yoga was a path that would really work. So I became very motivated then to take a look at, okay, how can I use this practice to become a more sane, a more compassionate, a more patient, a more loving person. Those are all the values that I really believed were possible through the yoga. And how can I do this without crunching my lower back and causing egregious pain? That was really the motivation to develop the school of thought, the body work that is alignment yoga. And it's been an evolutionary process and certainly not one accomplished in a vacuum. I've had some good teachers along the way. One thing we should note right away, for some reason, our radio viewers can't see you right now. One of the minor details about you is that you tower above most of us mere mortals. You were also an athlete, a high jumper. Talk a little bit about that. Is it not the high jumping that ruined your back? Or, you know, what, what's the relationship of this athletic drive that you had and this yoga drive? You're absolutely right. I'm a relatively large person. I'm six foot six and bare feet. So I'm an unusually tall person, and that was a great gift uh, athletically for me. Uh, I was a high jumper and played basketball as a young man. And by the time I got to be about 14 or 15 years old, it became clear I had some talents as a high jumper and became ranked nationally and started competing at national meets and started to become fairly aware that this could be a pretty bright, interesting future for me. What also became apparent is that what was between my ears was a weak link. That if I was at a meet that was very small and wasn't very important, I'd do very well, I'd set a record. And if it was a big meet, it was a championship meet, then I'd generally struggle. And, uh, it became abundantly clear that it was my head was a weak link. Against all odds, it was my father who identified that meditation might be helpful. And remember, this is back in the early 80s, before meditation was quite as popular and well-known as it is now. And my father somehow scared up these meditation relaxation tapes. For whatever reason, I immediately took to them. You know, it seemed like the kind of thing a father buys their kid and their kid sort of puts in the, the closet never to use again. But I really took to it to the point where I wore out the first set of tapes and had to get another set and wore those out. And I just immediately took to it like a duck to water. And I think no small part of it, it helped my athletic performance, you know, where I could start to go to the biggest meets and perform well and set records and start winning. And that was very important to me. You know, I was a very competitive young man. And I wish I could sit here and say that, that I had a big uh, ideas of illumination and enlightenment. And I just wanted to beat the other kids. And meditation gave me those tools. And a couple of years later, I started to have more and more athletic injuries. My body was starting to break down from the training. This time it was my mother who identified that, you know, maybe yoga may be beneficial for you. And she gave me her yoga book. Similar kind of thing. I started reading through it. Richard Hiddleman, Yoga in 28 Days, and immediately I was hooked. And so I was listening to my meditation tapes each day. I was doing some of the yoga poses each day. So the meditation started when I was 16, and the yoga postures, the asanas, started when I was 18 years old. 
At that point, I was still very much driven by the material, physical world. Uh, I wanted to be a better high jumper. I wanted to be a better athlete. And it wasn't until I went off to college that I started to expand my worldview a bit. I started to think about what is, as I mentioned earlier, the ultimate nature reality. What lies beyond what is just obviously in front of me. And physics seemed like a very good way to accomplish that. And then I'd been practicing yoga already for you know four or five years. And it started to become clearer that this yoga may potentially be a way that I could see how things work too. So I came into yoga for very sort of selfish reasons. And within a matter of about four or five years, the motivation shifted very significantly to what's possible. What is our mind? What is our body? What is spirit? What is nature? And how do I fit into all of that? So it was a good turn of events. To put things up front, my wife is one of your devotees. She's one of the people who attributes great teaching powers to you. She also works, does yoga therapy type work, she says you have an uncanny ability to recognize, see, sense what's going on. I think it's almost like you know the inside movement of every muscle, things that can't be visible from outside, but that you have a tremendous sense of that. Is this physics at work? Is this a mysticism? Is it because you have ESP? What is the mastery that you have? Where does this come from, and how does it serve us? In the teacher training programs, I call it yoga 3D x-ray vision, is to see beneath the layer of the obvious, to see what's underneath it. And you'll see my bias come through here, to my mind, what's more interesting. Largely, it's a gift, and it's a gift I've had since I was a kid. When someone would have a headache, my mother or loved one would have a headache, where they would ask me to rub, I'd say, well, that's not where the headache's coming from, it's coming from here, let me rub this place here. And so I developed a reputation in my family as being able to help people with headaches by being able to see the source of their headache. So part of it's a gift. You know, that could be a wonderful discussion to contemplate where that comes from. But it's a very raw gift, and it's a gift that comes at a very high price. The capacity to see doesn't mean you can do much anything with it. If you can sort of develop and mature that gift, then you can be a great service to other people. And that's been the fire in my belly for the past about decade or so is can I teach other people to utilize the gifts they have? And I fervently believe that not everybody may see the way I see, but everybody can see. And a lot of times people in teacher training, they're sort of skeptical, like, oh, yeah, right, you saw this, and I could never see that, blah, blah, blah. But we all have the capacity, especially uh, mothers. I think we've all had the experience where we walk down the stairs in the morning, and we come around the corner, and we think we feel fine, and it's a loved one. Maybe our mother or somebody says, oh, you don't look like you're feeling quite right. And then we take a moment and pause and go, well, by God, I'm not feeling quite right. I think all of us have had that experience where we can see something in someone else that they can't feel or perceive within themselves. I don't think we'd generally call that ESP or anything very magic because I think it's very ordinary. I think that is the nature of the human experience. And that's part of my goal as a yoga teacher is that I think that is part of our essence that we have shut ourselves off from. Through yoga, whether it's alignment yoga, whatever form it may be, If we can connect with that primordial connection we have, in my mind, to every creature that walks this planet, then we'll have done something really useful. To be in a headstand that's perfectly aligned for half an hour in and of itself, relatively useless. But if we can take that headstand as an opportunity to learn, to perceive, to be present with, so then we can start to see our inherent latent interconnectedness and then act on that to the service of others, then we've done something really useful. 
So, Scott, fill me in a little bit about how you got from doing all this other yoga, which was not helping you, to how you got to alignment yoga, which I think, I mean, you're the person who's brought it together. You didn't make up all of it. You brought it from various strands you learned. How did you get from one place to the other? Talk about your own healing, and maybe I think it'd be very useful to our listeners to hear about some of the people you've been able to help with alignment yoga. Talk about how this actually makes a difference for people. So I became very injured doing the yoga I was doing. I also noticed that by such a almost obsessive attention to detail that I was becoming more of a nervous, sort of anxious, neurotic person. It became really clear is that uh, something needed to change. You know, I think as Einstein has said, the definition of insanity is continuing doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And I did the insane for a number of years. My back hurt. I was becoming less resilient in the world. And my yoga teacher said, well, you need to do more yoga. It's abundantly clear you're not doing enough yoga. So two hours became three hours, became four hours a day of yoga. And far from becoming more resilient and hardier and a more caring, compassionate person, I became a more self-absorbed, nervous neurotic mess. So the back injury may have been a blessing in disguise because it pulled the rug out. You know, there is no plan B. I just, it hurt too much to really do much of anything other than go to work and come home again. And that was about it. What I ended up doing is I returned to my meditation practice with a good deal of enthusiasm. And I could sit on the cushion and I could be with my thoughts and start to sort things out. Along the way, I also encountered some wonderful healers and some wonderful uh, teachers. And one teacher, in particular, Therese Connolly was the first person who really sat me down and said that these gifts you have in your capacity to see could really serve as humanity. And if you keep using them the way you do, you're going to die very, very young. I don't know if she meant to say it quite that strongly and harshly, but it probably is the only way to get the attention of a 20-something-year-old. And she started teaching me about grounding, about how to utilize the gifts I had without taking so much out of my own hide. And that was a very important lesson for me. The other teacher I encountered at that point was a man named Roger Eichens, a wonderful eccentric yoga teacher living outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And in meeting him, he first started showing me the idea that mobility, flexibility, is the least important thing in yoga. Stability is the most important thing. And if you want to create healthy flexibility, the first thing you got to understand is healthy stability. I was so immediately knew this guy speaking the truth. I sold my house, I sold my yoga school, and I moved down to this little farm outside of Madison, Wisconsin to study with this guy. In the physical realm, I learned a tremendous amount from Roger Eichens. And a lot of the ideas you'll see in alignment yoga are going to be coming straight from his body of work. He called it high-energy yoga. He had his reasons for that name. The idea of stability, the idea of sort of remedial work are ideas and inspirations I got from Roger. And then more on the energy of the spiritual realm about learning how to be grounded, learning how to be steady, learning how to use intuition and perception in a way that is sustainable over the long haul is a gift I received from Therese Connolly. Along the way, I healed my own back to the point where I could do whatever I wanted to do, yoga-wise, skiing, biking, whatever, working a full day in the yard, building a wall. And I also healed on an inner level, too, is the gift that I believe God gave me. I was now able to use 30, 40 hours a week. Whereas before, when I was doing the other approach to yoga, I could only teach about five or six hours a week before I'd get absolutely exhausted by it. So I became much more able to be in the world with this new approach to yoga, and I was able to serve more people. Some of the examples of being able to see, 
An example I really enjoy from a couple months ago, I was working with a young man uh, with Down syndrome. He had been a very bright, uh, exuberant, just a lovely, lovely young man. And he'd fallen recently into quite a depression, which was hard on everybody around him because he'd been just the bright light for everybody. So they brought him in for a yoga session and we're taking a look at his breathing pattern. His breathing pattern would predict either depression or anxiety. And then his physical posture predicted depression. You know, it's really hard to be depressed when your chest is lifted high and your head is held up. And when your shoulders are rounded forward and your head is projected forward, slouched forward, that's more of a sort of depressive stance. And so we did a hybrid of work with him. We were trying to get him to stand up straighter, trying to get his diaphragm to move in a healthier way to better regulate his autonomic nervous system. So we had a couple tasks to do. We worked with some of the backbending poses with him. You know, those would be the poses you'd expect would lift you up to better posture. And nothing was working. And we were pulling this tool out of the toolkit and that tool out of the toolkit, and we're ending up with the same result. So then started to consider about what are some of the child development patterns that lead to the capacity to create spinal extension. And so we arrived at if we did an asymmetric tonic neck reflex, which is an infant developmental pattern, that that would perhaps potentially jumpstart his capacity to stand up straight to do spinal extension. By doing a couple of yoga poses, reproducing a child developmental pattern, sure enough, we kick-started his spinal extension, which got him standing up straighter. We did some breathing exercises, got his diaphragm moving properly, and then about six, eight weeks later, got him back. It's been just a joy. I love working with virtually everybody, but kids with developmental delays are probably my favorites because there's such a warmth and a depth to their spirit. Well, then, Scott, we'll have to talk about spectrum yoga momentarily. But first, I want to just question you. I mean, our society is so allopathically oriented, and if something doesn't work right, go to a doctor, have him crunch it, have a chiropractor crunch you, or get a drug to handle it, that kind of thing. Depression, people think now, give them an antidepressant, and that's the solution. How much of the ills of our society, these physical ills and maybe mental ills, how much of them has this physical component that we can actually take charge of versus we just need some good drugs? Well, let me preface it by thinking we live in perhaps one of the most golden of all times, that we can go take acupuncture, we can take herbs, and we can have surgery, and we can take drugs. And not one of them is better than the other. And that's a sea change. When I was a young man, I was very strongly, you know, all drugs bad, all surgery bad, all yoga good, all acupuncture good. I've worked with enough people and done enough yoga therapeutics where I see that there's a time and a place to take drugs. There's a time and a place to go have surgery. And especially when you start to talk about the mind. We live in a golden time that uh, depression has wrecked more lives than arguably any other single condition. And the antidepressants may not be perfect, but by God do they work. And they have brought so many people into functionality, and they have saved so many lives that I'm a huge fan. When there's a need, thank God we have them. So I just kind of want to preface with that. In terms of the various pursuits of yoga and meditation, the ground is moving beneath, beneath our feet. It's a, another 
golden time. You might see I'm a bit of an optimist. But we're seeing the research is coming in left and right that's validating that depression, meditation may be the most powerful tool we have in our toolkit. We take a look at the pioneering work of John Kabat-Zinn and mindfulness-based stress reduction. He proved to us scientifically that this was a fantastic technique to help people out with the suffering that they, you know, just daily suffering. And people who are stressed and people who are having chronic health conditions that we watched in a scientific controlled environment that they got better. Then we're seeing the work of a lot of the neuroscientists, Richie Davidson, you know, in particular at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they're taking a look at the long-term meditators. Their brains are different, that their happiness centers are better developed, that their fear and apprehension centers are less developed. And people will say that, well, you know, that's long-term meditators. Their self-selective population, is this really going to apply to me? So then they turn around and they took novice meditators and they taught them how to meditate. And then they track the changes in their brain. They track their immune system. They track their state of mind, self-reported. How do I feel? How stressed am I? On every single measure, we're seeing that meditation is creating changes. And not changes that are just short-term, but changes that are durable and long-term. So it's a remarkable time where we're starting to see that meditation truly changes the brain, changes the wiring, how that thing works, that great mystery that's the human mind. What I'm really excited to start doing is taking a look at the breathing and the yoga postures is how does that in turn start to affect the mind. And it's one of the things we're noticing in our Spectrum Yoga Therapy program is we're seeing results that really exceed what anyone would predict that we're seeing people that have struggled with aggression. We see people that struggle with anxiety, and sometimes anxiety is so crushing they can scarcely leave the house, you know, complete agoraphobia. And we're seeing that some of the people in our Spectrum Yoga Therapy program are using the breathing techniques, the yoga techniques, to become more resilient, to become more patient, a more calm. And one of the instances that absolutely just warmed my heart more than probably any other teaching experience I've had was a young man who had been having aggressive outbursts. The school had called the family and was saying, you know, we just can't take this anymore. This kid's going to hurt somebody. The only game in town was the pharmacological straitjacket, basically sedate the kid into submission. Well, you sedate a kid that much and learning is done. Basically, school becomes prison. It becomes a holding cell. So we did one yoga lesson, one-hour session, and young man went to school the next day, no aggressive outbursts. Went to school the next day, no aggressive outburst. Went a year and a half before his next aggressive outburst. What really caught our attention is this is a young man who has almost no words. So if he wants a drink of water, he can't tell you. If he finds the room is too hot, he can't tell you. Just imagine if we had no communication. Life would be frustrating. We'd be aggressive too, most likely. It was watched in school that he was starting to become very frustrated. Obviously, there's something he wanted or something he needed, and he just couldn't get the idea across. And he was starting to escalate, starting to escalate. People are starting to back up because this is a big kid. And he took a deep breath, and he diffused himself. And that's when we realized something magic has happened. It's not just what have we done to this person or what are these techniques doing to this person. He was then able to regulate himself. And that was one of the greatest days of my teaching career was when I heard that story, is think about how that young person's life has been changed and the education he can get now that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So I could bore you for the rest of the evening with stories about spectrum yoga and yoga therapeutics, but we have some wonderful stories to tell. 
Today for Spirit in Action, we're speaking with Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson is the guiding force, I think, behind Alignment Yoga, which is a body of work, uh, enhancement, I think, to the yogic toolbox that we have out there. Blue Mounds Dharma Center. Blue Mounds is a small city outside of Madison. That's his residence. Where That's what he calls home. He also works in Madison at the Mound Street Yoga Center. And then he also just mentioned Spectrum Yoga Therapy. You are listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and our website is northernspiritradio.org. Our guest today is Scott Anderson, and his website is alignmentyoga.com. Of course, you can follow the link from my site, northernspiritradio.org. So, Scott, you said something about Spectrum Yoga. Flesh it out a little bit more. What is Spectrum Yoga? How is this different than Alignment Yoga? Is it just an application of it? I think it's a body of people also that's growing. Spectrum Yoga came, uh, originated out of my, some of my work individually with kids on the autism spectrum. For those of you that are not familiar with autism, it used to be a very rare condition. One out of every 10,000 or so births would end up diagnosed with autism. It's become much more prevalent, estimated to be one out of every 120 babies born will be diagnosed with autism. A lot of people are immediately going to say, well, that's about diagnosis, and that may be true to a certain extent. But the number of people whose lives are deeply affected by autism is growing exponentially, regardless of what particular number you hang your hat on. What is autism? The thing that may be most noticeable is an impediment in communication. It occurs on a spectrum. Some people with autism may be very, very verbal and may be just slightly challenged with communication. For example, maybe with making eye contact may not come readily for them. Other people with autism may have no speech whatsoever. Some people with autism may be able to communicate through the written word or email, potentially. And other people with autism may not even have that form of communication. So we're seeing that autism also tends to come with an anxiety component, too. And riding on the coattails of that anxiety is oftentimes uh, difficulty with the digestive system, uh, a lot of food sensitivities, digestive system upsets. So there's a whole pantheon of symptoms that are part of the diagnosis of autism. Uh, I started to have more and more students knocking on my door that had autism because the word got out, the results we were having with them. And it became very clear that my capacity to see people in a given week was exhausted. And if I really wanted to get the word out, really wanted to do more good, we had to train more people in this technique. So my collaborator at the time, Susan Wallach, was a wonderful inspiration to get us going and start training other people in these techniques. So what exactly are these techniques? I sort of worked backward from the goal that, you know, someone that says they're going to cure autism, well, that's the person I'm going to run really fast away from. That autism is not something we've seen can be cured, but it can be managed. What my goal was, was can we help people with autism better regulate themselves? One of the hallmarks of autism is somebody starts to, for example, walks into Target. Maybe it's the noise of the shoppers. Maybe it's the flicker of the uh, fluorescent lights. It may just set them off. Maybe into a temper tantrum, maybe into a self-stimulatory behavior. But what we see is that the response to stimulus is problematic. So one of my goals was how could I help people with autism 
regulate themselves, have a better response to the stimulus that's the world around us. And so then I took a look at, that's largely going to be, what is the state of the autonomic nervous system? We would like to see people in a parasympathetic autonomic nervous system response, which is basically the world's a safe place, and it's going to stay a safe, safe place. It's the worldview most of us want. What I saw for most of the people with the autism spectrum is they were living in a sympathetic nervous system response. And basically that's the nervous system response that's waiting for the other shoe to drop, constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. So when you have that sort of over-revved, overactive nervous system, the slightest provocation, your nervous system is going to take as evidence, ooh, something really bad's going to happen. So we took a look at, okay, why are these people on the autism spectrum more likely to inhabit a sympathetic nervous system response? And that brings us back to the breathing. And the breathing can be a trigger. If you breathe with a certain pattern, it tends to be very calming. If you breathe with another pattern, it tends to be sort of more agitating, more likely to put you in that sympathetic nervous system response. And then I then took a big step backward from that and said, okay, why are they breathing this way? There must be a reason because it doesn't seem to be serving them. And what I found is that a lot of the people with autism were using their diaphragm to hold their body up. That their diaphragm, which should be a respiratory muscle, they were using it as a postural support muscle. So we developed a system where we first start with grounding them, getting them to be present with what we're going to do with the yoga. Then the next step is to start to wake up the core postural support muscles that are designed to hold the body up. Then the next step is to go in and start to unhook the diaphragm from trying to hold them upright. And then from there we went into the shoulders. Uh, one of the classic reactions to stress or to anxiety is to tighten the shoulders in a very particular way. And we take a look at state of the mind creates state of the body. State of the body creates state of the mind. It's a feedback feed forward loop. So if we interrupt that cycle, we start to loosen up the tight shoulders, you can create a calmer mind. And then finally, we end the routine with a very specific breathing exercise about helping to restore that parasympathetic nervous system response. That's a very technical sort of explanation. Basically, it's what we call the recipe. And it's five exercises, and we train a crew of volunteers. And we offer our spectrum yoga therapy classes at various locations around the Midwest where we've trained people, and we charge as little as possible basically rent the space and cover the cost of the website and we get this yoga into the hands of the people who can really benefit from it uh, with spectrum yoga therapy and so it's a program we're very very proud of it does sound like a good program how far along is it how many people have we had i mean you're centered there near madison are we reaching out and affecting all the rest of the world is this uh, you know an explosion that's going out and disseminating across the entire world the country at current time, we're very much located in the Midwest, and we had to put the brakes on about a year and a half ago. We were offering our Spectrum Yoga Therapy program. We were training volunteers, and the word had gotten out. And the invitations are coming in fast and furious to go to Atlanta, to go to Seattle, to go to L.A., and teach people and train people. What we saw is that the demand had exceeded the capacity of the organization. If it was just me going out and doing all these trainings, that I was going to be at my full capacity within a matter of months. 
and we wouldn't get this stuff very far. And so what we ended up doing is made a very hard decision, is we really retracted and contracted our organization quite a bit to build our infrastructure. And so we found a wonderful attorney to help us pro bono to get our nonprofit status. We assembled a board of directors, bylaws, and all the other things that were needed for part of that nonprofit status. So we created an organization that's now set to grow. So we're now starting the process of doing more advanced trainings and getting people up to speed that can go out and train and do the job I have historically done. We're offering bigger classes in the Madison area. And something we're really excited about is Madison, Wisconsin is sort of ground zero of the neuroscience and meditation. And we'll be working in the future with the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds and starting to do a little data collection. And we're having wonderful anecdotal reports about what's going on in our program. And we're hoping to start to do some data collection and start to take a look at what actually is going on. Because one of the hallmarks uh, with Spectrum Yoga is the techniques are easy and they're cheap. And they're very easy to transmit. And that's a combination I really like because the families that have kids on the autism spectrum are oftentimes being pulled a lot of different directions at once. There's not a lot of extra resources to go around. And if we can provide something that makes even a modicum a difference and it's cheap and it's easy, then I think that's going to be an activity that's well worth the investment of time and energy. So our listeners should check out the info on Spectrum Yoga. That's uh, up and coming and I think, societal changing technique that's being brought to the forefront. As you talk about so many of these things, you, you talk about this muscle, this core, this strengthening, the diaphragm, all of those things. It's clear you know all of the body parts. Sometimes, and, and maybe this was part of your experience initially in being damaged by yoga, Maybe the teachers of yoga don't have the full insight that they need to use the tool wisely to guide other people in usage of it. Over the last 10 years, we've seen a proliferation of all kinds of yoga, yoga fit, and all kinds of things that barely resemble what came to us from India. How do we know that someone who's offering to teach us yoga or offering yoga therapy of some sort, how do we know that what we're getting is the real product, that they're not charlatans, that they're not just someone who, you know, read yoga in 28 days and now they presume to be the purveyor of true knowledge? How do we know who's a charlatan and who's the real deal? The difference between the charlatan and the person who really knows, unfortunately, there's not going to be any letters behind their name that's going to give you an absolute lock, stock, and barrel. This is the person to trust, and this is the person not to trust. So the old uh, expression, caveat emptor, applies entirely in selecting a yoga teacher. Generally, the best thing to do is ask all your friends. When you hear a name that comes up again and again, that's probably a pretty good yoga instructor that the power of the first-hand referral is the most powerful guarantee you have about somebody's competence. So if you go into a community and you keep hearing a name again and again, that person is probably doing some good. There are now certifications that are starting to become meaningful. Uh, the Yoga Alliance is an organization that's really hit its steam here in the last probably 10 years. Really good group. 
they offer certification to the 200 hour level and at the 500 hour level and the 200 hour level means that they have a baseline of training they put their hours in probably going to be fairly well qualified to teach a group class the 500 hour level is going to be more geared toward yoga therapy most generally and you're probably going to be in good hands someone that has taken the time and energy to do those trainings part of the difficulty we have is that uh, nonsense doesn't really know national borders and nonsense travels across national borders fairly freely international borders partly what i had to relearn came from india there are teachers out there that have a lot of confidence and a lot of bravado and they'll stand up in front of a group of people and say this is true those people generally go out and stand in front of their classes and say this is true and their students take that same piece of information and stand in front of a group of people and say this is true and what I find is that we're very reluctant to question was that true in the first place I came out of a background of physics and mathematics uh, hard sciences then I went to grad school in biomechanics so a very solid understanding of how the body works and there's certain movements that are possible for the human body and there's certain movements that are going to tend to bang bone against bone they may be possible in some people have very loose connective tissue but for the majority of the rest of the world they may not be possible and if they are possible they may not be desirable so part of my exploration was to start to take a look at the body of work that I had learned and just ask is this a sensible movement that's going to make a healthier body or is this a movement that is some way shape or form straining the connective tissue that maybe this person can do but may not be recommended for the rest of us to try and do what I found is that in the school of yoga I came from there was a lot of stuff that was brilliant and it was beautiful and it's entirely correct 95 percent of the body work was good and about five percent of the body work was absolute nonsense asking the body to make movements that bodies are not designed to make if you ask a body to make those movements again and again inevitably ultimately some part of the body is going to break down and we see certain injuries that are very common in yoga we see a lot of people are overstretching their hamstrings and they get a pain right at the where the hamstring inserts onto the bone we see strained sacral iliac joints a very common yoga injury no reason that should be happening absolutely none whatsoever we see a lot of people out there with sore necks that are doing yoga no reason that should be there and so when we blindly repeat the instructions or the words or the advice of our teacher we're propagating without really knowing what we're propagating it's one of the lessons I like a lot about Buddhism and one of the ideas is if a teacher gives you an idea your job is to chew that idea if it doesn't quite taste right you spit it out and if it's a good idea you swallow it and it becomes part of you that's something in general we don't do in yoga and I think it's at our own peril and that's been one of my goals as a yoga teacher is it's important to have teachers and it's important to be humble and it's important to sit at the foot of somebody who is more masterful than you are and to take the teachings but to take the teachings blindly and then repeat them blindly is really a disservice to the tradition that our job is then take home the teaching and practice and practice and practice and practice and if you don't understand it ask questions and practice and practice and you're gonna find that some of the teachings should be digested and some of the teachings were just they don't work for you or for your culture or you know whatever the case may be and that's the step I find is mainly missing is we are afraid to question and oftentimes it's from the top down 
the charismatic teacher, the guy in the white robe, is so forceful that you don't dare question because you'll get your head bitten off. Something's missing there, in my opinion. I think you put your finger, Scott, on a very central part of the issue, and that is the figure in the white robe, the, the expert who's up there. You know, with science, we expect person to pull out the study, show the diagram, show the calculations. But yoga maybe falls in between this. Is it a science? Is it a, a spirituality, religion? It's got both of the components. And so, you know, if someone's passing on to you their spiritual doctrine, there's no such thing as questioning. It's just the doctrine, right? You're just supposed to go along with it. At least that's the way many of us learned. And, and I'm not saying that that's the way you and I learned to do spirituality. But many people, I think, deal with spirituality or religion in that form. So how about giving us a view into your spirituality, your religion? What do you bring? What got you to this point? And why are you able to question when so many other people aren't? Is this science? Is this religion? Is this, is this something else? I had the good fortune a few weeks ago to be in New Delhi, and it was the 22nd meeting of the Mind and Life Institute, which is the organization that's uh, formed around uh, the curiosity of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and wanting to know more about science, being very intrigued with being a part of science, too. And I really appreciated hearing His Holiness say a few times that the Buddhist path and the scientific path have more in common than they do dissimilarities. The idea of the Buddhist is to have the first-hand internal experience, that take an idea and through the meditation, through the internal practices, uh, wrestle with it. Or to use a more scientific term, to do experiments, to watch what happens. And on the basis of that experiment, then you can start to make your conclusions. And he said it a number of times over the course of the four-day proceedings that the path of the Buddhist and the path of the scientist are really more similar than anything. And that was really heartening to me because that is a lot of my, my own values too. Now, I'm not a Buddhist, and uh, if I were to claim what I am, probably the most accurate term would be a fallen away Unitarian. That's how I was brought up. My parents had me baptized, first thing, and then were very disinterested in any sort of religion or spiritualism. Uh, when I was a small boy, I started to show a lot of interest in it, and I begged and pleaded my parents to take me to church. They dropped me off, and they'd go do their own thing, and they'd come pick me up. And I, even as a young boy, I had this tremendous affinity for love of Christ. And it was baffling to my parents because they thought that religion was really sort of the mark of ignorance. And my father was a scientist, and he was like, you know, that's proof positive that stupidity exists in the world is the existence of religion. But I wasn't to be swayed by it. So then my family ended up moving. That was a very convenient excuse for me not going to church anymore. But along the way, all our family events were held at Unitarian churches the weddings and the funerals and all that. So I kind of came to identify that I came from a family of fallen away Unitarians, but maybe it's more accurate to say that I came from a family of agnostics. So along the way, I sort of picked that up. I sort of picked up the uh, intellectual superiority of being skeptical and scornful of religion. As a young person, that kind of suited me well. You know, anything that I could do that made me superior to somebody else, yeah, that's a pretty cool idea. At least, you know, that's how my mind worked back then. So I became sort of alternating between being an agnostic and an atheist. It depended on how cool I wanted to be that day. And that really carried me forth into the, the yoga practice. And as I mentioned previously, is that I 
started meditating so I could beat the other kids high jumping. I started doing yoga poses so I could be uh, hardier and I could train harder and beat the other kids. So these were not very, you know, high flutin' motivations that brought me to the table of practicing yoga. But was, what was interesting is that learning to quiet my mind and starting to become aware of my breathing is I had internal experiences. These internal experiences didn't really gel with physics and didn't really gel with anything I was learning with science. I was very driven to understand how the world worked, but I was very reluctant that there was any divine force in this world. So I was studying physics to understand how the world worked, but by God, if there was a God involved. And I was doing yoga to understand how the world worked, but uh, by God, I wanted you know it to be not very God-based. And I kept having experiences. The way I started to see the world through the vantage point of interconnection and starting to see the joy in other people's eyes and in their hearts, it started to break down the, the walls that I'd built for myself. I don't think it was probably for another decade or so before I became conversant and comfortable with the G word, but I was starting to have distinctly spiritual experiences very early in my yoga practice. And it was quite a path of uh, resistance to because I'd really internalized the idea from my upbringing that ignorant people, people who are not educated, are the people who support churches and God, and that the superior people, the intelligent people and the educated people don't go for that sort of mumbo-jumbo. And I struggled with that for a lot of years. You know, I tried on the various spiritual paths. You know, I was doing yoga, so I became interested in Hinduism. Uh, I'd been meditating, so I became interested in Buddhism. But interestingly enough, the two isms didn't really seem to fit very well. So I was very clear there was a God. But I didn't know what kind of clothes he wore or she wore. It wasn't until I was on a bike tour in Italy, and this was uh, probably about a dozen years ago, and I was in a mausoleum. It was a beautiful mosaic. The image of Christ just literally just lifted right off the wall and just came right into my heart. That was an absolute epiphanic moment. It was not a relationship that I'd had since I was a young boy. Through the yoga, through the meditation, I felt like that was the least likely uh, experience I could have ever had. In that one moment, it just was so sweet and so beautiful and so pure that there became this firsthand relationship once again uh, with this long lost you know, friend is certainly not the word, but uh, it's as close as I can come that uh, this practice was about redefining and reconnecting with that relationship. So people are often sort of surprised to hear that, you know, almost 30 years of meditation, you know, 25 plus years of yoga practice, you know, how to identify myself? Well, against all odds, a Christian. So I view these practices now as supporting my capacity to open my heart to the teachings of Christ. At the same time, I also want to be very clear that I believe that Christ is one of the paths, but is not the only path. And that's, to me, what's beautiful about the meditation path and the yoga path, is it allows you to find God, whatever form that may take. So I can be sitting here right now saying, I had this epiphanic experience with Christ, but far be it for me to say, that's the only path. But what I am very enthusiastic about and have a fire in my belly is I think yoga and meditation are a good way 
to find your path to the divine. In my bones, I believe that there's a force bigger than any single one of us and bigger than all of us combined. And we're all a part of that same force. And that's part of the passion for me in this practice is finding that. I'm just blown away. I so clearly hear the truth speaking through you that I feel totally enriched. We've been speaking this hour with Scott Anderson. Alignment Yoga, An Intelligent Approach to Ancient Wisdom is his new book. Alignment Yoga is also organization. You can find the link via northernspiritradio.org. You can visit him at his home grounds, Blue Mounds Dharma Center in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, which is right outside of Madison. He also has a yoga center in Madison called Mound Street Yoga Center. And don't forget to check out Spectrum Yoga Therapy. So many good things you're doing in the world, Scott. Such a gift, certainly to my wife, to me today, to our listeners, to the world. Thanks for bringing greater wisdom, greater depth, greater spirituality into the world. Thank you for having me here tonight. It's been an honor to share whatever little I know about this path, and uh, it's my hope that we can all come together to see that we each have our individual path that leads us to the divine. And as we come into that recognition, I think it'll be a better world for all of us. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice